Hi, I'm Kirk Kingsley, and I have the uh, distinct and wonderful privilege of being the middle school director here at Hillside. It was mid-November, midway through my junior year, and my football, football team had just lost its regional final football game, and I was showing up to the after party with a case of Mountain Dew. See, I'd been avoiding these parties ever since I became a Christian, but this night, this night was a little bit different, as the guys and I were kind of really reeling after our loss. Well, as you can imagine, not very many of those Mountain Dew cans ended up leaving the case. And before I knew it, I found myself with my buddy putting his arm around me. And he said, man, sure is glad to have the real Kurt Kingsley back. I'll talk about a buzzkill, right? See, he didn't call me a hypocrite, though he had every right to do so. He was simply speaking truth to the actions that were being portrayed. Oftentimes, Christians who claim to, claim to believe in God will live lives that reject, or live lives that don't, um, don't reflect that. We often hear um, people criticize the church or mock Christianity because of people claiming one thing, but living and acting in contradiction to that. We don't like the term hypocrite, and we especially fear that term being thrown at us. Is, is there a problem with the church not living like Jesus Christ? What about here in West Michigan? Or, or living to the standard that God calls us to. The famous nonviolent leader, um, Gandhi, in India, he once said this about Christianity. He said, Oh, I don't reject Christ, I love Christ. It's just that so many of you Christians are so unlike Christ. If Christians would really live according to the teachings of Christ as found in the Bible, all of India would be Christian today. You see, Others are watching us who claim to be followers of Jesus to see if our faith is real. This year in middle school, we had the pleasure of traveling through the book of James, just really picking it apart. And James, you may or may not know, was written by Jesus' half-brother. It serves as one of the first books of the New Testament, probably the first one. In James, you'll find 108 verses. 55 of them carry an action to it probably why many consider James to be one of the most applicable books of the Bible. Um, Also in the New Testament, James has more parallels to the Sermon on the Mount than any other book in the New Testament, given the same amount of space. And James, I think, looks a lot like the Old Testament book of Proverbs, encouraging God's people to actually live like God's people. Our middle school students, um, they were surveyed, and the topic the topic that they chose as impacting them the most this year from the book of James was our faith in actions. And so this is going to bring us to the section of scripture that we're going to examine very briefly this morning as Pastor Ron told me I need to be short. Um, but my hope is this morning that we will examine ourselves and with honesty that we'll, we'll answer the question, is my faith alive or is my faith a little bit dead? In chapter 2, starting with verse 14, James says, Um, What good is it, my brothers and sisters, if someone claims to have faith but does not have deeds? Can such faith save them? Our actions must declare our faith louder than our words. Um, uh, um, St. Francis usually gets the credit for saying this, but somebody once said, preach the gospel at all times. If necessary, then use words. One of our middle school students said, actions really do speak louder than words in reflecting upon this text. See, James emphasized the kind of faith that saves is the kind of faith that produces good works. And if one doesn't see or do these good works, 
then they might have question, or they might have reason then to question their, their salvation. What use is the kind of faith that only talks and does not act? James is saying, does that faith save? He's asking a rhetorical question because the answer is no. His point was that an individual may say that they have faith, but that there needs to be evidence of that. Mom, say you invited us over, over for dinner or lunch or something like that, and you offered me a, uh, a warm piece of crisp Dutch apple pie. Um, happens to just be my favorite, not saying anything, but <clears throat> let's say that Dutch apple pie slipped and fell onto the floor. If previously you had told me that you're like a clean or a neat freak, I would have no problem scooping up that pie back onto the plate and finishing it because there would be no dog hair in it, no crumbs. You know, let's be honest, I'd probably still scoop it up and eat it anyways. But my point is this. As Christians, when we say that we are Christians, when we say that we're followers of Christ, our lives will, will reflect it. Doesn't mean that we don't sin. Doesn't mean that we don't occasionally mess up. Christianity has room for a little messiness. James goes on to say, suppose a brother or sister who is without, without clothes and daily food. If one of you says to him, go in peace, keep warm and well-fed, but does nothing about their physical needs, what good is it? As true believers, we're moved to act when others are in need or hurting. Another one of our middle schoolers this year, reflecting upon this, said, we can't just talk. We have to actually do things to spread God's word. James, earlier in his letter, um, told us, asking the question, what is true religion? True religion is looking after orphans and widows in their distress and keeping oneself from being polluted by the world. See, it sounds good on the, on the surface to say, yeah, I'm a Christian. But we evidence, James is emphasizing that we express our faith to others, that we live that out. He goes on to say, in the same way, faith by itself, if it's not accompanied by action, is dead. See, he makes no excuse for those who don't measure up. And in his mind, Christians evidence their faith by walking in certain ways and not in others. How do, how do, people, how do people see our faith? Through our actions. Somebody comes to you with gossip. Wow, can you believe it? She's wearing that, or, man, look at, the, look at the house they're building over there. You see how big that is? We don't enter into gossip because gossip in and of itself is inherently bad. We don't enter, in, 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 we don't enter into gossip because we know that ourselves, that Jesus loved us, he forgave us, and he showed us mercy, and therefore we ought to love others and, um, and show them mercy as well. Jesus, um, as he was going along appointing his disciples, Comes along, comes along Simon, and he says this, Your name is Simon, son of John, but you'll be called Cephas, which means Peter. See, when Jesus saw Simon, he didn't see Simon as he was as a fisherman. He saw Simon as he would one day become Peter, the rock on which I would build my church. Likewise, as we profess our faith in Jesus Christ, that's when the transformation in our life begins. That's when the process starts. And people should be able to see in us, us becoming more loving and compassionate, and kind, and gentle. James goes on to say, but someone will say, you have faith, and I have deeds. Show me your faith without deeds, and I will show you my faith by my deeds. Christianity, it's not just faith, and it's not just works. It's a faith which is manifested by our works. See, God sees faith, and we, we see the works. We see the actions 
Faith is first, but works must follow or actions must follow to demonstrate that that faith is real. It's not works that are going to bring us into a right relationship with God, um, but those are to be the natural result of a true salvation experience. James goes on to say, you believe that there is one God. Good. Even the demons believe that and shudder. You foolish person, do you want evidence that faith without deeds is useless? See, it's important to mention that James, who who wrote this letter, is the half-brother of Jesus. Because John tells us that James did not even believe in him. Imagine that. James growing up with the Messiah. Do you blame the guy when at age 30, all of a sudden, his brother says to him, Hey, by the way, I'm God. Imagine if your own brother at age 30 said that to you. We would have reason to doubt that, right? It was probably after the resurrection that it started to connect. And certainly after the empty tomb that made all the difference, like Pastor Ron spoke about last week. I hear this often of people who have grown up in church. Um, That they've always known about God. They've always known about Jesus and the Bible. And at some point... It all goes from this intellectual knowledge to this true heart relationship from God, from Jesus just being Savior to Jesus then becoming Lord of their lives. Head knowledge does not equate transformed hearts and minds. And my guess is that James might recall the time when uh, the disciples and Jesus were walking along the path and they encountered this fig tree. And Jesus wanted to pick some fruit from it and noticed that it didn't have any figs. He cursed the tree. And then later, when the disciples and Jesus were walking back by this tree, the disciples were amazed at the fact that this tree had withered at the words of Jesus. When we move beyond just a head knowledge of God, that's when our lives will begin to produce fruit. For whatever reason, that tree didn't, wasn't producing fruit, and Christ destroyed it. And Jesus says to us in Luke 3, 9, the axe is already at the root of the trees. Every tree that does not produce good fruit will be cut down and thrown into the fire. For some of us, we might be a little bit like James. We grew up in church, had good Christian family, good Christian parents, good Christian education, yet it's still possible that we could still be like that tree not producing fruit. Or we could be like the demons who believe that there's just a God. We need to move beyond God being our weekend Savior to God being the center of our lives. Nothing should take the place in our lives that's reserved just for God. How then is someone saved? The Apostle Paul says in Romans 10, 9 through 11, If you openly declare that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For it is by believing in your heart that you are made right with God, and it's by openly declaring your faith that you are saved. Anyone who believes in him will never be put to shame. In this passage, Paul was referring to a kind of faith that changes a person's life. It's not simply adding belief in Christ to what, some are, to what they already believe and do. It's a recognition that the entire hope of escaping the condemnation of God depends upon what Christ accomplished on the cross. That person brings about a change in their life. That person lives and looks differently because that person is so grateful for what Jesus Christ has done for them. The person who says that he trusts Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior in his life, yet has no desire to turn from the sin in his life, hasn't quite understood 
the true need for salvation. The true believer recognizes that apart from Jesus Christ, that they would be internally condemned. So Jesus Christ for that person isn't just their Savior. Jesus Christ for that person becomes Lord of their life. And as Jesus becomes Lord of one's life, one of the things that will be evident is that they'll be concerned about giving the gospel message to the lost so that they too would have the opportunity to trust Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior. Uh, a couple weeks ago, Pastor Daniel shared a statistic that's alarming to me, that only, um, that only 90% of, uh, 90% of Christians will ever lead somebody to Christ. I think we can change that. Only God can save someone, and we respond by believing the truth of the gospel and living accordingly. So, do we have an alive, active faith, or a faith that needs a little bit stirred up? Or is our faith a little bit dead? Do we look and live like we talk? How well do our actions mirror the faith that we proclaim? This is a question that we all struggle to answer well. We'd like to point to all the times that our faith and our works overlap. Um, But if you're like me, a lot of times you see some gaps and crevices. As I encourage your kids, some of you grandkids, some of your some of you, your great-grandkids, as I encourage them this year, I now encourage you guys. Consider revisiting the short book of James. And as you read, focus on those areas that James mentioned. Our actions during trials, our treatment of those less fortunate, the way that we speak and relate to others, and the role that money, money plays in our lives and how we live our lives. Allow James to encourage you to do good. Allow James to aid you in Jesus becoming Lord of your life. Thank you, Kirk. Well, part two of the sermon this morning. Uh, my name is Eric O'Connell, uh, and I'm the high school youth director here at Hillside. Uh, and I just would love to share with you what we've been teaching and what we've been uh, learning with the high school students uh, this year. This year, we returned to our roots in a way. Okay? We took it back to Sunday school in a series that we called Sunday School 2.0. And what we did was we looked at a bunch of stories in uh, the Old Testament, and we looked at it with a fresh perspective. We looked at creation. We looked at Abraham and Isaac, Joseph's coat, uh, Jonah and the whale. And one story that stood out in particular to our students, uh, and a lot of the story that had one of the most impacts, was the story of the plagues. Uh, now, what we did with each story was we first started with the nostalgia that came with the regular Sunday school lesson. You know, the crafts, uh, the lessons we took home, the songs, and for the plagues, it was Pharaoh, Pharaoh. You know, we showed the video, they loved it. Uh, so we, we returned to that nostalgia. But then what we are doing now is with our more mature lens and mind, and they they are mature, don't undersell them, um, we looked at it and said, what does this story mean for me today that I'm not taking a craft home? What does this story mean for me today that there's not a song that I can remember? And, And one of the questions that we asked about the plagues is a question that if we're being honest with ourselves, a lot of us have probably asked before. It's, God, why you gotta be so harsh? (laughs) Why so much destruction? Why ten plagues? 
Um, and really, why do innocent children, seemingly innocent children, have to die? It's a, it's a rough question that Sunday school doesn't and probably shouldn't answer um, to younger kids. And so we, we, we discovered these questions and we talked about them. And I don't think we answered it the best way we can, but this was our attempt uh, to it. For those of you that need a review, here's the, the plagues. The first one is the uh, Nile turning into blood. Okay, All of the fish die. The river stinks so bad. No one can bathe. No one can drink. This is the Egyptian's life source, and it is essentially paralyzed and useless. The second one is uh, frogs. Now, admittedly, this is probably the least destructive, but if you're like me and hate all types of animals except dogs, uh, this was really, really, uh, it's paralyzed social life. Frogs are everywhere. You can't do anything. Uh, the third one, gnats. The dust of the, of the earth literally turned into gnats, the Bible says. Uh, we get bugged by one or two gnats at a barbecue. Imagine walking outside and every dust particle you see turning into dust and covering everything. Fourth one was flies. The, the Bible says the land was in ruin. Uh, people couldn't sleep, or people couldn't eat without ingesting flies. People couldn't walk, work, sleep without swimming through flies. Uh, people's skin was, was welted and swelled with bug bites. Um, this, and what we see here at first is a really interesting response by Pharaoh, too. This is the first plague where Pharaoh asks for a ceasefire from God. Basically says, please cut it out. So our human understanding empathy might say, okay, God, couldn't four plagues have done it? Couldn't you have used just these four to say, all right, Pharaoh, let, let, let's let my people go. Pharaoh asks for a ceasefire, uh, but God keeps coming. And in the fifth plague, we see the death of livestock. Uh, it, and this only affected the Egyptians. So this would have made it really bad for God's people because the Egyptians would have said, huh, we're getting in trouble here. Our lives are being affected, but yours isn't. What did you do? Um, and here's the reality, too. This, the livestock dying, this would be the equivalent today of all of our technology just simultaneously crashing by an act of God. We walk out these doors today, and all of our technology is done. It's dead. It's, the battery's dead. We don't know how to function, almost. Imagine, then this would have been the equivalent for the Egyptians. Their, the well-being of their animals affected their money, their travel, everything. Um, this would have absolutely paralyzed them. Then we've got boils. The Egyptians were terribly sick and in pain, uh, and even doctors couldn't provide relief. Then we've got hail. Everything. It kills everything not covered. Human, animals, plants. Uh, And again, the Israelites are not affected. And what's even more interesting is Pharaoh's response after this plague. Pharaoh actually admits that he has sinned against God pre-Ten Commandments, all right? So we've got Pharaoh saying, I have sinned against God. Please relent. So we would think, okay, maybe that's all we need. Seven, Pharaoh's realized that he sinned. Let's, Let's move on. But no, God keeps coming. We have the plague of the locusts. One of the most feared plagues in the ancient world. It killed all of the vegetation that wasn't destroyed by the hail. All right, and what we even see here, too, is Pharaoh say, asking for forgiveness and again admitting that he sinned. So we'd think that maybe, again, in our human understanding, possibly this could be the end of it. But no, God keeps uh, coming with plagues. We have the plague of darkness. Imagine not being able to put your hand this far out from your face and not being able to see it for three days. Imagine feeling darkness suffocating you. Uh, and, but the, the Israelites had light. Um, the Israelites could see. And this happened for three days, and to be in, engulfed in darkness was seen as a grave punishment from God. 
And then the last one, perhaps the one that we have the most trouble with, is that all firstborn children in livestock are killed. Um, the Israelites are spared because they put the innocent blood of a lamb on the doorpost. Um, but even Pharaoh's son is killed. Now, imagine for a second the Egyptian side of this story. Um, they're being decimated at this final plague, and the Israelites are celebrating and beginning Passover. This is the Egyptians' worst nightmare come true. This is something that they will want to blot out from their history books, something that they will never want to remember, something they may not recover from. And simultaneously, the Israelites are starting a festive tradition that will last for thousands of years and that is still celebrated today. If you remember the plague story, if you remember Exodus, you'll remember getting offended by Pharaoh killing um, innocent children, throwing them into the Nile. And we get so offended by that, but yet we come to this part of the narrative, and God takes away the the eldest son, the eldest uh, child, leaving fathers and mothers without children. And I don't want to be too crass, but we almost see it as a victory in our Christian tradition. Uh, We as a community mourn when a child gets sick. We grieve together when a parent loses a child. But here it's a little bit different. Why is that? Now, I I must admit that I'm not going to, I can't give an answer to that question. My limited human empathy and understanding may never satisfy the depth of that question. However, I do believe that this narrative and I do believe this story lends us to a reason of why this had to happen. And I really do think it's because the Egyptians just did not get it. Plague after plague, they were incapable of realizing that this was Yahweh God. We sang about the great I am. They were incapable of realizing that this was I am who I am that was sending these. In fact, they probably saw it as more of a failure on their God's part rather than the victory of Yahweh God's part. And if you've seen the movie um, Exodus, God of, uh, of God and Kings, uh, there's one scene that highlights this so perfectly. Pharaoh comes up to one of his advisors at around plague eight and says, have you prayed yet? Have you prayed to our gods. And his advisor, covered in boils and is just completely messed up, says, yes, I've prayed. And I prayed six other times, and they didn't answer. It, this reality that our gods are failing us rather than this God, Yahweh God, is winning. And so we see that, that all the plagues were and, were and are an attack on Egyptian gods that were being worshipped. And the Egyptians would have understood this very clearly. If we go to the plagues, we see uh, Happy and Isis. Happy and Isis are the god and the goddess of the Nile. And to show that God is more powerful than Happy and Isis, God turns the Nile that Happy and Isis were ordained to protect into blood, rendering it useless. So the Egyptians might turn to a god called Haget. And Haget was the goddess of birth. Notice what the goddess's head shape is. It's a frog. So God says, I'm going to take your God and I'm going to cover the land with it. You're not going to have any control over these frogs and this God's not going to have any control either. I am more powerful than Haget. And then we've got Set, the God of the desert, storms and evil. Yahweh God literally transforms all of Set's dirt into a storm of gnats to prove that he is more powerful than this God that they worship. Then we've got Uachit, uh, the God of flies, and he chooses which lands are protected from Egypt's flies, which ones get it and which ones don't. And God says, no, he doesn't. I do. I take Uachit's control, and I say who gets flies and who's not, and all of Egypt is going to be covered in them. Then we've got Hathor, the most famous goddess. She was important in every area of life and death for the Egyptians, and she's represented by none other than a cowhead. 
And then we've also got Apis, the god of strength and fertility, as represented as a bull. Both of them livestock. Livestock gods that they would have prayed to. And in the, the fifth plague is the death of the livestock. Essentially Yahweh saying, you can pray to them, but I control whether they live or they die. I am more powerful than these gods that you worship. Then we've got Sekhmet, the god of disease, who protects the Egyptians from getting it. We've also got Emotep, the god of healing and of medicine. And Yahweh God pretty much says, Sekhmet can't save you, and Emotep can't cure you, but I can. They're not as powerful as I am. And then we've got Nut, the sky goddess. Or maybe even if we go back uh, to Set, the god of controlling storms. Uh, with the, the plague of hail, God says, uh, Nut can't Uh, contain the storm that Set is supposed to control. I am more powerful than these gods. And then uh, we go to Osiris. And this is when we start to get a little serious. Up until this point, these other gods that we've been talking about, they're they're specific gods. They're conditional gods. If you need to go for a very specific thing, you go to them. But when we get to Osiris and the rest of them, these are sort of the big dogs. You don't mess with them because they've got a little bit more power. And Osiris, uh, he was the god of crops and fertility. And with the plague of the locusts, all crops and fertility were destroyed. The very thing Osiris exists to defend, God destroys and says, I am more powerful than this god. And then we've got Ra, the sun god, and Horus, a sun god. Ra, in the Egyptian theology, was the beginning. He was the alpha. Um, And you don't mess with Ra. You don't mess with Horus because they control the sun. And in comedically ironic, entertaining fashion, God gives three days of darkness. The longest plague, basically saying, your biggest, your most powerful God, I am going to render them useless for the most amount of time. You think that Ra is your Alpha, but he is no match for the one that they call the Alpha and the Omega. I am more powerful than both of these gods. And then lastly, and I promise this was the most appropriate picture I could find, um, we've got Min, uh, the god of reproduction. The Egyptians might say, in all of this destruction, surely Min will at the very least allow us to start over. He will allow us to recreate and to get things right again. And then there's Isis, who is the goddess whose only job is to protect Pharaoh's son. Um, As long as Pharaoh and his family are safe, we have a chance. And Yahweh strikes down the firstborn of every family, including Pharaoh's, communicating that as long as you worship these gods of Egypt and continue to run away from me, no one is safe, no one is exempt from these plagues. Effectively, what Yahweh, I am who I am, tells the Egyptians that if you, you can continue to worship Osiris, Ra, Newt, Horus, whoever you want, but they are no match for the God of the Israelites. They are worshiping and praising a God who is so much more powerful. In fact, take notice of those Israelites. Look at them. They have not been affected. They are celebrating, in fact, and that's because they worship me. Look, take a look at them. They may not get to have the fancy clothes, the, the, the things that you eat. They may not have luxury, but you know what? They have their children. They have their well-being. They, they have joy, and they have peace, and that's not a mistake because I am provided it for them. I am was the one who gave it to them, and all of the Egyptians take notice of this, including Pharaoh, and he relents and say, go, go to your God. Get out of here. Get out of Egypt. Go with him. And if we fast forward, we see that the Israelites are delivered out of Egypt. They're brought out of Egypt, right? But here's the problem. Egypt has not come out of them. 
They are, in, they are out of Egypt, but Egypt is still in them. They've been told for 400 years who they are to worship, who, are the, who they are to follow, how to live their lives. To do anything uh, against that would have been foolish. It would have been dangerous. And so God's remedy to this reality is a, a new code of conduct, a new way of life, some rules, some commandments, if you will. And so when we understand the plagues as an affront to God's, we understand more better the first, pl- the first commandment which says, you shall have no other gods before me. Why? Because I am the one who brought you out of Egypt. Ra didn't, Horus didn't, Newt didn't. I am who I am. Yahweh God is the one who brought you out of Egypt. Because of that, you shall have no other gods before me. Remember me, serve me, and obey me. And second, do not create any idol and do not worship it because I'm a jealous God who loves you dearly and who is here to provide everything that you need. God makes it abundantly clear that the reason it got so messed up, the reason things got so bad, is because they kept running after other gods and not coming to the one God who could provide everything that they needed. Now here's the thing. We read Exodus and we hear this story and we're here this morning in a church praising and worshiping one God, right? Egypt was a polytheistic society. They worshiped many gods, but we don't have that problem today, right? Oops. And the show comes on with these religious fanatics. They were crazy. Well, you would think they were crazy if you didn't understand their culture or their religion. See, that's just the thing. They were worshippers of idols. And they took things to extremes. They painted their bodies. They wore these ridiculous costumes. They chanted sacrifices to their idols. If they had built these enormous temples to worship their idols, it seemed like their entire existence climaxed into this one scenario, this one over-the-top act of worship. You don't really relate, do you? Let's try it again. I was watching TV the other day, and the show comes on with these religious fanatics. They were crazy. See, that's just the thing. They were worshippers of idols. And they took things to extremes. They painted their bodies. They wore these ridiculous costumes. They chanted, they danced, they, they made sacrifices to their idols. But they had built these enormous temples to worship their idols. It seemed like their entire existence climaxed into this one scenario, this one over the top act of worship. And it's not just about uh, other guys. It, it, it's not just about sports either. That 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 serves as an illustration to, to a much bigger problem we have. You see, the Egyptians they had their gods. These are the Egyptian gods, and they worship them daily. But here's the thing: we have our gods too. All right, we 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 have our gods that we worship. We have altars that we create, um, and, and we have the same problem sometimes. And the question that we gave the high school students with this talk and that impacted them so greatly um, and the same question that we ask everyone today is a simple one, but it is the most important, most influential, most high-stakes answer that you'll ever give, and that is which God will you serve? 
which God will you choose to serve? We all serve a God. Unfortunately, sometimes it's just a God uh, who remembers us. It, we, we, unfortunately, we forget to serve the God who remembers us even when we forget him, the one that takes notice, the one that saves us, delivers us, and protects us. So we all serve a God. Which one will you serve today? Now, we're going to have the opportunity real quick. We're going to have uh, one of our uh, high school students, Erin Sloterbeek, come up, and she's just going to give uh, testimony about how this series in particular and this year in high school has impacted her spiritual life. So, welcome, Erin. All right. This year, I was incredibly blessed by our series, Sunday School 2.0. I loved it because every student and leader in our group could relate to the characters and the stories we studied. And whether we had heard the stories dozens of times before or were brand new to the Bible, there was always a new lesson to be learned from God's words. My favorite story that we studied at Collide this year was the story of Joseph. The thing I appreciated about this particular talk was that we didn't only focus on Joseph. We also focused on Joseph's brothers and how they felt overshadowed by Joseph and unloved by their father. And we looked at Potiphar's wife as well and how sometimes we just want to be rebellious even if we know that it's wrong. Focusing on these different characters really made an impact on me because as I talked to the other girls in my small group, we found that each of us identified with different people in the story and that Eric's message reached each of us in a unique way. One of my favorite things about Sunday School 2.0 was seeing how my understanding of the Bible grew from week to week. Most of the stories that we talked about at Collide were ones I was familiar with from being in Sunday School as a little kid. But looking at them now as a teenager, I was able to understand and appreciate them so much more. As I began to understand the individual stories better, I also started to see much more clearly how these stories fit into the overall message of the Bible. However, although my understanding of the stories changed, I made one very important realization, and that was that the God in those stories never changed. Our God was the same when he appeared to Moses in the burning bush. He was the same when I read a Bible story for the first time, and he remains the same today. And realizing this made God's words and promises to the Israelites so much more applicable to my own life because the words he spoke to them, he also speaks to me and to all of us each and every day. We just have to be open to listening to his voice and to hearing his calling for our lives. Thanks, Aaron. <clears throat> Thanks, Kirk and Eric, and to all the young people who participated this morning. I think, again, you get a flavor of, of, of what God is doing among the middle schoolers, among the high schoolers. And and uh, just the gifts that they are to us. It has been so great um, to see them grow and to experience them. Uh, having been here for a long time, I baptized a number of these kids, and so it's just phenomenal to, to be a part of this, and we thank you for that. So before we have a word of prayer, I just want to mention, I just found out before the service, I didn't get a chance to tell Daniel, but Jeff Van Ryan is um, deployed once again for about a six-month time, and so leaves uh, his wife and, and baby are, are back here. So just uh, pray for him and all those who are in in uh, in harm's way so let's let's pray together father we thank you for your word we thank you for the way that it speaks to us and we thank you for the way that that kirk brought it to us and the way eric did that uh we know that you alone are god and and so help us to live lives that reflect that lord we want to have a faith that is real a faith that makes a difference we thank you for the young people here um, we just love them and 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 their love for you and and all the things that they can teach us and we pray that you will continue to to bless us with with good relationships, with, with a body that recognizes that we need both those who are older and those who are younger. And may we continue to learn from each other. We pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. Will you please stand for God's parting word of benediction. People of God, as we go from this place, know that the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ goes with each and every one of us. And may we live 
lives that are radically new and different in that grace. Amen.